It is a joy and a privilege to be here this evening. And I'd just like to concur with the words of welcome that you have received. It's always a, a joy and a privilege to be in the house of God. Whenever I was an unconverted sinner in the world, I wouldn't dream of being in this place. And I thank the Lord for the wonderful change there's been in my heart and in yours as well. And we're glad to see you, whether saved or unsaved. And whatever your spiritual condition, we trust that tonight, as this meeting has been convened for your benefit and for your blessing, that God will speak to your heart. And above all, that you've heard already and trust you will hear, that you will hear the Lord speak to your heart. Amen. May God minister to your need tonight and bless you richly. I have to get straight down to the burden of my message this evening. If you have your Bible with you, could we turn? Now, I'm going to be as the homiletics teacher, Mr. Cook, uh, would have told us in homiletics class, we announce a text and then we go everywhere preaching everything else but the text. But you'll understand why in a moment or two I have read this little text and another text and then about 20 others after it as well will come in in the message. But you'll understand how they tie together and there is a need to do exactly what I'm going to do this evening. First book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the chapter 18. And do you see the little phrase there in verse 14? Genesis, the chapter 18. And there's a little phrase in verse 14. It's a wonderful little phrase and it simply says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, if you got nothing else out of this meeting, first of all, I would be very surprised. As some people might say even to the preacher, I get nothing out of your preaching. Well, you know, my answer would be if anyone says that to me, they generally don't say it to your face. They usually say it behind your back. But if they're brave enough to say it to your face, well, my answer is very simple. Well, I read God's word. Did you not get anything out of God's word? And further still, we sung some wonderful hymns. Did you get nothing at all out of those hymns? And furthermore, there was prayer offered by another person rather than me. And you mean to say you got nothing out of that person's prayer? <clears throat> of course, the word of God would have been read. Did you get nothing out of that? The text might have been given to you. Did you not get anything out of that? If you might say to me, I get nothing out of your preaching. Well, surely you're bound to get something out of the meeting. And you see, I would have to say there's a heart problem. That's right. It's not the preacher. Now, if it is the preacher, we'd have to hold our hands up mm -hmm. and we'd have to say, well, we need to get alone with God. That's right, we need to get a word from God. Yeah. We need to have it on our hearts and we need the filling of the spirit to bring it to the people that they might hear it. But I'll say this to you. If you get nothing else in this meeting tonight, would you get this text? Would you go home with this word? Is there anything? Too hard for the Lord. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I'd love for you all to answer that. I'll ask you again. Answer it in your heart. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. Do you want a corresponding text? I turn over to the book of Jeremiah. You'll find a lovely verse there. 
<coughs> Jeremiah chapter 32. Did I get this right? Jeremiah chapter 32 and the verse 27. That's a wonderful verse. Look what it says. Jeremiah 32, verse 27. Behold, I am Jehovah, the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The Lord puts the challenge out this time. Yes. And the Lord says, I am Jehovah. I am the Elohim of all flesh, the creator of all mankind. And the Lord says to those whom he has created, and he says it to me, is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything that your God cannot do? That's exactly what he's saying to you. I want you to keep those verses in mind because I might say some things that might seem to contradict everything I've just said. So I really want you to listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Before we do that, we'll bow briefly in prayer. Amen. Father, we thank thee for the word of God tonight. Yes. It's open before us. We thank thee, Lord, for an open Bible. We thank thee, Lord, that the book of God is in our hand, in our yes. mother tongue. We have read it with at least some understanding. There's nothing grey, dark, obscure or vague about these words, these verses of Scripture. Lord, they're clear, they're plain. We could not make them any more simple. Lord, we would destroy the full meaning if we try to oversimplify what God has made easy for us to understand. God grant that thou wouldst write the word upon our hearts tonight. And in the gospel, as we think about these verses in the context of other scriptures as well, may we see the glory of thy person. Amen. Lord, there are two sides to this coin and we'll have to turn it over in a moment or two. And we pray, Lord, as we do, we might see something of the character and the beauty of the Lord our God, of his Amen. integrity, his impeccability and the glory of thy nature. Lord, to this end, Grant to me now, thy servant, the infilling of thy spirit. I ask for the anointing oil, and I pray that thou wouldst bless that has been of thyself. Bless the ministry and song of our brother Tommy. We thank thee for his labor of love. And use those words, we pray, softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. And where will you spend eternity? Lord, fill me now with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in answer to prayer, save the lost. Restore the backslidden. Revive the church. Amen, we ask Lord. these things believing in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen. You know, in Lisburn, we like to do some children's work. We have a very large children's meeting on a Wednesday night. Uh, thank the Lord over this past while, we've had to put on some extra buses to bring these boys and girls in. We had a little extension mission and meetings over in McGabry and a few years ago, we felt burdened of the Lord to commence some children's work there. We ended up with two or three children. We weren't sure whether to carry the meetings on. We did some outreach. We prayed. We sought the Lord's face. Numbers moved up to about eight children. And we still said, well, Lord, should we go on? There are eight here, and some of them belong to our congregation in Akali, and we would like more from outside of our own churches. So we did some more outreach. We sought the Lord's face in prayer, and God has given to us now some 26 young boys and girls in our meetings. And one of their favorite choruses is this. 
I'm not going to sing it to you. There are two bad singers in this house and both of them were in the pulpit a minute ago. And if you want to outsing the worst singers in this house, then you've got to outsing the Reverend McLaughlin and myself. But it goes like this. My God is so big, so strong, so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And it tells us in that little chorus, the rivers are his. I'd love to do the actions as well. The mountains are his. The stars are his handiwork too. And my God, he's so big. He's so strong. He's so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And you think of this. Can my God raise the dead? Of course he can. He's already done that. He raised the widow of Nain's son. He raised after four days being dead and he in his body was corrupt and stinketh, as the Bible says, Lazarus from the sepulchre. And he raised many whenever he died upon the cross and rose from the dead. And at the end of the age, he will raise every single body from Mother Earth. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing, nothing my God cannot do. Can my God Give sight to the blind. Of course he can. He has opened the eyes of one born blind. John chapter 9. He opened the eyes of two blind men. One were given by name Bartimaeus. My God is so big. So strong. So mighty. And come on you know it. There's nothing my God cannot do. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I am the God of all flesh. I am Jehovah. Is there anything too hard for me? Can the Lord cause the sun and the sun to go back 10 degrees? A thing thought impossible with men. A thing that would have to deny the laws of nature and science. It would have to go against everything that God himself has placed by scientific And by law in the earth. Can my God put the clock back? Can he move the sun back 10 degrees? Of course he can. He did it in the days of Hezekiah. Can my God cause the sun and the moon to stand still for the space of one single day? Of course he can. He did it in the days of Joshua that he might uh, defeat his enemies. Can my God dry up the river Jordan and cause the rivers and the waters of the Red Sea to part and a wall of water to remain there that his people might go across on dry ground. Of course he can. He's already done that in the Old Testament. Can God cause from the dust of the ground lice to form and command them to invade a certain area in Egypt? Can he Group together locusts that have no king, that no man can command, even five or six in your hand. You couldn't direct them to any part in this building. Can my God create swarms of locusts to invade the land and not touch another part of that land? Of course he can. My God is so big, so strong, so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Can my God, think of it, can my God Bring water out of a solid rock to quench the thirst of over three million men, women and children. 
Can he cause quails to come from the east with the wind and to be three or four feet deep that his people might be fed? Can he cause manna, angels' food, to come down with the dew and in the morning be found upon the ground and sustain over three million people in the wilderness for 40 years? Of course he can. For my God is so big. He's so strong. He's so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. He created the world out of nothing. In case you didn't hear that, he created the world out of nothing. He doesn't need anything to be of use. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He needs none to help him exist. All depend upon him. He is the one who sustains life and opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. God sets a boundary for the seas. They do not pass over to Mother Earth and land. For my God is in control. He is Lord. He is God of all. I repeat it for the last time in case you get sick listening to it. My God is so big. He's so strong, so mighty. There's nothing, nothing my God cannot do. Praise the Lord. Now, I do not want to contradict everything that I have just said. And I don't want to get into some controversy in this mission and leave you for another week arguing and fighting over what that preacher said. But I want to tell you there are some things my God cannot do. There are some impossibilities with my God. And I don't want you to think for one moment that I have got my theology wrong. And I don't want you to think for one single moment that I am now going to contradict everything that I said about my Lord, my Savior and my God. Because these impossibilities do not limit his power. These things that he cannot do. They do not bring some blemish to his nature. Rather they exalt him. They glorify him. And they reveal the beauty. The integrity. And the impeccability of God's nature. And his glorious person. So tonight. Very briefly, I want to look at some impossibilities with God. The first one I want you to turn to is Hebrews chapter 6. And it's the verse 18. We find a little phrase there. Hebrews chapter 6, if you have your Bible with you. It's Hebrews chapter 6 and it's the verse 18. And you see the little phrase there. We don't. We need to really do the reading to get it in its context. But in verse 18, but that by two immutable things in which, look what it says, it was impossible for God to lie. Do you see that? Now that doesn't limit God's power. That is no blemish on God's character. That is not to contradict the, the fact that the Lord says, is there anything too hard for me? Rather, it glorifies his person. And it says there, it's impossible for God to lie. Think of it. 
When the Lord speaks, therefore, he is speaking the truth, isn't he? Because to lie is to deceive. To keep back the truth is to be untrustworthy. And if God was to conceal the truth, if he was to hide the truth, if he was to obscure the truth, if he was to alter or change or water down or compromise in any measure the truth, it would be to deceive us. So when God speaks, I really want you to see this. He speaks the truth. In him is no darkness at all. And when the Lord says something, listen to me. It's the truth. He doesn't tell you a lie. It's impossible for God to lie. So when we read his word, we're reading his truth. We're reading the truth about all things. We're reading a book that is trustworthy and reliable because God has breathed it. God has inspired it. God has given it. God has kept it. It's his word. It's the truth. And there's no lie. In God's word, God's character would be called into question. God's nature would have a defect. In fact, he would have to deny his very existence, his very character, his very nature. If the Lord was found out in an untruth. If God ever deceived you. If the Lord told you something that wasn't right. If the Lord ever told you something and it was found to be a deception then the Lord himself could not exist as God. He would have told a lie. And the Bible tells me in the Old Testament that God is not a man that he should lie. He tells the truth. The Lord's nature is holy. It's honest. Therefore, there's no guile in him. He is the light and there's no darkness in him. He is the truth. There's no deception with him. And Christ, the second person of the Godhead, who is called in Scripture, the Word of God said, I am the truth. He said to the Pharisees on another occasion, I tell you the truth. And therefore, when Christ speaks, he speaks the truth. When God in Christ speaks to us tonight, he's telling the truth. It's impossible for God to lie. Let me say this to you right now. The Lord tells us the truth about sin, doesn't he? It doesn't come from men because they don't tell the truth. If it comes from the devil, it's a lie. If it comes through the church, quite often it's not to be believed because they'll tell you you're a good person. They'll tell you you're all right. You don't need to be saved. That's a lie. That's right. That is not the truth. If you want the truth, God speaks the truth. There's nothing he cannot do, but he cannot lie. And so he speaks the truth about sin and he tells us about the fact of sin. And he tells us that every single person that is born into this world of Adam's line is born a sinner. That's the Bible. That's the truth. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, 22 and 23, listen to it. There's no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen, the free church does not tell people they're sinners. This preacher cannot for one moment be accused of telling you that you're a sinner. And no court in this land 
could ever try me honestly. And I cannot be brought up any charge of offending my fellow human beings. When I say that you're a sinner, God says it and he tells the truth. Isn't that a remarkable thing? There are people who don't believe they're sinners. That's why they're not saved. There are people who don't believe they have sinned against God and they deserve just punishment in hell. But the Bible tells us God speaks the truth. And you know what he says? There's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that there's not a just man upon the earth. There's no man that sinneth not. Think of it. Not a just man. Not a good man. Not a righteous man. There's not a man upon the earth that sinneth not. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible not only tells us about the fact of sin. That's the truth. The Bible also tells me of the filth of sin. That is what sin has done to the human being. In Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. We have the words all together become filthy. And while I don't want to labour the point, and I could, but I want to say this, the Bible tells the truth about sin, doesn't it? Where it came from, Adam, for he represented us in the garden. He fell and we fell with him and in him. We're all guilty before God. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it tells us about the fact of sin. We're sinners, but it reminds us of the filth of sin. That is, our sin is filthy in the sight of God. We're defiled by sin. We're corrupt by sin. We're polluted by sin. And the Bible tells me in Isaiah 59 and 1, our sins separate between us and God. Therefore our sins shut us out of heaven. The book of the Revelation tells us that nothing that defileth shall enter therein. And therefore we're unapproachable to God in our sin. We are not fit for heaven in our sin. That is the truth, my friend. It may not have dawned on you. You may even, like the young girl who testified last night, think some of the things in the Bible are fairy stories, that they're not real truths, that they're just make-believe and you can choose to accept it or not. But I'm telling you now, God cannot lie. And he tells us something about the fact of sin. We're sinners. God says that. Are you going to argue with God? Are you going to call God a liar? Are you going to say, Lord, you're deceiving me. You're not telling the truth about me. When you say all, somehow that doesn't include me. It does. And then the filth of sin. Sin shuts me out of heaven. Are you trying to say to me, preacher, that if I died now, I would not be in heaven? If you're not saved, that's exactly what God's word tells you. And if you die without Christ and without trusting in his finished work, if you die without the shed blood applied to your soul and your sins forgiven, if you die without salvation, yes, you will not be in heaven. For the Bible tells me that. And furthermore, the Bible not only tells me about the fact of sin and the filth of sin, but it reminds me of the fruit of sin, the end of sin, the consequences for sin. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Listen to it. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. You have it here in the picture in the very church in the building itself. The wages of sin is death. That's the end of sin. It's already occurred. Did you know that? Spiritually man died. Genesis 
2, 16 and 17. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Adam, we know, lived physically for a few more hundred years. And we know that Adam died that day, for God said it. And he died spiritually. He was cut off from the life and enjoyment of his maker. He lost out with communion and fellowship with God. And every single person born of Adam's line is born. And I believe in trichotomy. It simply means body, soul and spirit. That's a controversial issue. I'll throw that one out as well. But I believe in my heart. When Adam stood before God representing you and me. That's how he stood as a trichotomy. In the, in the sense of three. Body, soul and spirit. And whenever Adam sinned against God, God says, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Look what happened. His spirit died. He was cut off from the life and fellowship of God. He had no desire to seek God. He had no love for God, no affection for the Lord. And every sinner, every person is born like that, body, soul, and a dead spirit. And when Jesus looked at Nicodemus, that's how he saw him. Body, soul, and a dead spirit. And you know what he said? <laughs> Nicodemus, look, look. You must be born again. Your spirit regenerated. Yes. Made alive. Quickened. You must be born from above. It's a supernatural work and operation of the spirit of the living God. That's what you need. And that's the fruit of sin. Cut off from God. And then comes physical death. Listen to me. You can't stop the aging process. Have a look in the mirror. We're all getting older, you know. Some of the young people here will say, well, I'm not. I'm getting better looking. Some of the vain people here are looking in the mirror and say, boys, I'm beautiful. Yeah, but those who are realists, they just have to look and they go, boys, dear, what's happening to me? I, whenever I was a child, I was worried sick what I would look like when I was 40. I'm well past that. You know when I became 40? I had every right to be worried as a child what I would look like when I was 40. You can't stop the aging process. Now you can waste your money. Ladies, I don't want to offend you. I really mean that. You can waste your money on anti-aging cream. You can plaster it on. And you can put it on by the bucketful if you want. And you can fill in all the cracks with your polyfiller. And you can get the best of anti-aging cream. But it's not going to work. Later on or sooner or later you'll realise it's not anti-aging cream. It's a good ironing you need. That's what you need. And most of us are going that way as well. But what I will say, you can't stop the decay and the ageing process in the body. You know why? Because the body's dying. It's the fruit of sin. And then comes eternal death. Spiritual, physical and eternal. The second death in hell itself. <laughs> the Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die. James 1.15 That when sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. But I'm glad tonight the Bible also tells me the truth about the forgiveness of sins. I not neighbor the point. You know why? It'll bring me nicely into my second thought. The second impossibility with God. The first one is this. He cannot lie. And the second one is this. God cannot save your sinful soul. Of which he has just told you the truth about. Apart from Christ and his finished work. It's impossible for God to save you apart from Christ. It's impossible for you to get to heaven apart from Christ. 
It's impossible for God to accept a sinner and justify legally a sinner in the light of the broken law of God apart from Christ's life of righteousness and substitutionary death on the cruel cross of Calvary. Acts 4.12 tells us that. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Neither is there salvation in any other. None other name under heaven given among men whereby or through whom we must be saved. There is one God. Do you believe that? There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. He said in John's gospel, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And think of it. God knows no other way to save a sinner. But through Christ his only begotten and well beloved son. Can a sinner now stand before God and say, I'm baptized. I plead my baptism, my confirmation, or I plead my life of morality and religious devotion and charitable giving. I plead that I have been a good husband and a good wife and a good son and daughter, obeying my parents and going to church, reading my Bible, saying my prayers. I even give my money to worthy causes. And I haven't gone the way others have gone. I've never taken life. I've never committed adultery. I don't think I've stolen much in my life. And I don't think I've told too many lies. I might have been one or two. And I don't think I've really gossiped or murmured or complained about much in life. And are you telling me now that God doesn't accept me as I am? God is telling you that. And he's telling you the truth. Mm. He's not deceiving you. He's not as it were, cloaking the truth and putting it into a corner in a dark place where you can't fully see it or understand it. It's not looking through a glass, darkly straining to see if it's right. Listen to me. God is speaking the truth when he tells you not only are you a sinner, but he's saying there's nothing you can do and nothing in this world can save your soul. But through Christ alone and his finished work, God can save you. There is no plan B with God, you know. There is no other way that God has. There are no other means that God has at his disposal. I can say my God is so big, so strong, so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But I can say this, he cannot save you apart from Christ. And if you die without Christ, you'll be lost in hell for all eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, he left heaven. He was sent by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and the second person of the triune Jehovah God in the eternal counsels of the Almighty was sent to be the substitute for sinners. Christ came, who is God blessed forevermore. He became a true man, that is God, the creator of the ends of the earth, entered into our humanity. No mere holy angel. 
or impeccable, righteous archangel could ever represent fallen, sinful man and holy, just God. But the God-man, God's only begotten Son, entered into our humanity. He was made bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in the days of his manhood and humility and humanity, he lived a perfect, sinless life. We don't read too much from the time he was born in Bethlehem. We don't read too much except for one incident when he was found as a boy of 12 in the temple arguing with the doctors and the lawyers and then he became obedient to Mary and Joseph. But we read of him at his baptism and we wonder how he spent those years in Nazareth, how he spent those years in Joseph and Mary's house among his brethren and God gives the testimony of his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Isaiah prophesied of him and God the Father says, Behold, my servant, mine elect, the perfect servant of Jehovah. I by my life cannot establish <laughs> righteousness. I cannot keep the law of God perfectly for I am a sinner condemned and bound for hell. But Christ came. And in his life, you've got to understand this, in his life, he established righteousness for us. In his perfect obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave the law to Moses at Sinai became subject to that law and fulfilled it completely for me. Hallelujah. And when I believed on him, his righteous life in the days of his flesh yes. was imputed, reckoned over to my account. I stand right with God only on the righteousness of Christ given over to my account when I believed. Not when I worked, not when I earned it or merited it. When I simply believed, believed on him to be my saviour. And then in his death, the Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied the righteous demands of God's law against sin because Christ became the substitute. He, in the eternal counsels of the Godhead, he gave himself to be the surety. That is, he would guarantee that he would come, become a man, live a sinlessly perfect life, and he became what was known as the surety, the guarantee that he would die for his people's sins. That's why it was impossible for Christ to refuse the cup in Gethsemane. That's why we reject those commentators who said that Christ had second thoughts. That is not, that's blasphemy. That's right. Christ never shirked the bitter cup, but love drank it up yes. for me. And in the garden, the Lord Jesus Christ Knowing what was in front of him. He said not my will. Thy will be done. Because he was the surety. He gave his word. In the eternal counsels of the Godhead. And remember I told you he cannot lie. That's right. So he had to go to the cross. And so he did. And on Calvary's middle cross. There was what is known as the great transfer. Now listen, I said if you get nothing else out of this meeting, get the text. But would you get this? 
because in the gospel this is important and you will hear me and I'm sure the Reverend McLaughlin as well will repeat this and has done so in his ministry. God always punishes sin. That's right. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. Now I could offend you tonight unnecessarily or knowingly. Trust I don't do it knowingly. I could sin against you and do you something of harm. Then I could come to you and say, look, I'm sorry about that. And you could say to me, that's okay. Let it go. I don't need to be punished. I don't need to go and do penance. I don't need to, as it were, put things right and do ABCD to please you. You just simply forgive it. Well, God doesn't work like that. But the ecumenical clergymen tell us he does. He simply forgives sin, never looks for its punishment. He just simply says, you're sorry, that's okay, I forgive you. He just simply throws it behind his back, sweeps it under the carpet, or he just forgets about it. I'm going to tell you something now, and this is the truth. God always punishes sin, and he does it in two ways. I want you to see this. One, personally, on the sinner in hell. God punishes sin. Or two, big word, I learned it in college. Still don't know the full meaning of it. Vicariously, by means of a substitute, by means of another. It's what is known in theological terms as the great transfer. I'll put it like this. My sin, vile, hell-deserving sins were taken. And they were all, that's right, all, placed upon the body of Christ and my sin was fully met in God's wrath and judgment and punishment all of it on the body of Christ Christ took my place Christ died for me he not only took my place but historic biblical Christianity goes a little further and says he took my place and my penalty you cannot transfer sin without transferring its punishment and its eternal penalty. And on the cross, Christ died for me. Amen. Christ suffered for me. Christ paid the price for me. And that's why I will not be lost in hell. God punishes sin. He's just. He punishes sin either on his son or on the sinner in hell. It's got to be one of the other. Now, which will it be for you? Will you come as a guilty sinner to Christ and find your sins have been fully met on the body of God's dear Son? Or will you die in your sin and suffer the eternal punishment of God upon your sin in that awful place called hell? That leads me finally to my third point. Because God, one, cannot lie. Two, God cannot save you except through Christ and his finished work. And three, and we could go on to believe me, but we'll not. But thirdly and finally, God, it is impossible for God to take your soul out of hell if you die in your sin. It is impossible. Now God can do all things. And there's nothing he said is too hard for me. But I say this with respect because God's word teaches it. If you die in your sin, it's impossible.
for God to take your soul out of hell. Does that not break the child of God's heart? Mm. To think of a loved one or someone you brought to the mission or someone you've been praying for die in their sin. Does it not strike you that God cannot take that soul out of hell? And the Bible teaches us that in Luke 16. It says, beside all this, a great gulf is fixed. So that none, and I'm paraphrasing here, none can pass out of hell into heaven. And none can pass from heaven down into hell. That is to help any individual. So if you die in your sin and the Lord Jesus Christ told the Pharisees, ye will die in your sin and whither I go, ye cannot come. Think of it. And where Jesus is, you'll never be if you die in your sin. That is, if you don't believe the truth that you're a sinner and that only Christ can save you. God has no plan B. And you know something, even as a preacher, I have considered that thought. Oh, I know it is not biblical. And I know it might be sentimental, emotional nonsense with me. But I've thought about people I know and the thought that they might be in hell. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. But the thought that they might be or some family member still alive, rejecting the Lord. If they die in their sin, if they were in hell, would God not have another plan? Surely he's God. Nothing impossible with him. But when I read his word. I find I have to abandon such nonsense. No matter how much I would love it to be true. God has no plan B. And if you die in your sin. Where Jesus is. You will never be. And he's in heaven. That's the truth. So if you're in hell, you'll never be in heaven. There's no such thing as someone praying for your soul in hell or purgatory. There's no such thing as money paid to the church to ease your suffering. And as some priest would tell that dear, benighted and deceived individual. And how does he know that you've said enough prayers now? And you've given enough money now. And you've offered enough penance now. That I believed your loved one's head is out of purgatory. What a load of trash. What a load of nonsense. And if that offends some Roman Catholic. I'm telling you now. I don't mean to be offensive. But it's a lie. A blatant lie. Because there's a great gulf fixed. There's a great gulf fixed. And no one can pass from hell into heaven. And neither can someone leave heaven to dip their tip of their little finger in water and cool the tongue of those that are in the flames of torment. And I'm saying this to you. My God is so big. He's so strong. He's so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. We even have another little course that most of our men would quote in prayer in our prayer meetings in Lisburn. God, any rivers you think are uncrossable. God, any mountains you cannot tunnel through. God specializes in things thought impossible. Ah, listen, he can do what no other can do, but he cannot lie. 
That's right. He's told you the truth tonight. Mm-hmm. That you're a poor, lost sinner. Oh, God. Bound for hell. That you cannot save your own soul. And if you die in your sin, where Jesus is, you will never be. But the truth is, you can escape that judgment. That's right. You can be saved because God can save you through Christ and the finished work of the cross. Would you not believe the Lord tonight? Would you not say, Lord, I believe your word is true. I believe you've told me the truth and I believe the truth tonight. The devil will work it into your mind. That's what he'll do. He'll work untruth, deception in. He'll work in the lie. You're all right. Get through tonight and get through to tomorrow. Get that preacher's voice out of your mind. Get out of this meeting tonight. Get into that car. Get away on home. Watch television. Get into school. Get into work tomorrow and you'll be all right. The devil's a liar. That's right. God speaks the truth. Now, who are you going to believe? And you might even have the devil as your counsellor. Might be your own sinful heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. It doesn't tell you even the truth. And if you rely on your own counsel, we saw that, did we not, when we looked at the book of Job, where it says his own counsel shall cast him down. And the robber, the devil, shall take him on a worse. They tell me. Where do you stand with God tonight? Is it well with your soul? Are you saved? If you were to die now, tell the truth. Where would you be? Our brother summit. Heaven or hell. Saved or lost. Glory or despair. Where will you spend eternity? (coughs) Come, sinner. Come tonight. Seek the Lord. Call upon his name. Repent. Believe the gospel. And he will save you through the finished work of the cross. If you need help, don't hesitate to speak to us, please. Let's bow in prayer. (coughs) Father, we do thank thee for thy presence again this evening, for thy word to our hearts. We pray, Lord, thou would solemnize and sanctify the word to every soul. May we not leave this house in any way grieving, quenching the Holy Spirit. We pray for the troubling of individuals from the smallest child to the oldest individual. We pray for a gracious move of thy Spirit that will convince of the truth and will convict of sin and then convert the soul. Lord, do thy work tonight. Lord, it's not up to us. And Lord, when we come to an end of ourselves, that's it. It's the end. And if nothing happens, nothing will happen. But Lord, there's a God in heaven and we believe believe you're a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of grace and a God who is able and willing to save. Lord, we ask thee now publicly, save precious souls. Glorify thy name. We ask these things believing in the Saviour's precious name. Amen. Amen.